from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Paul Hoff. Paul was born and raised on the North Shore of Boston. Growing up, Paul was a tinkerer from an early age and is now an industrial modeler. Paul became disillusioned with Christianity when he was in high school and therefore rejected religion totally. It was not until he shared a paranormal experience with his young daughter that triggered his spiritual search. I started the interview by asking Paul where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I'm living within an eight-mile radius of where I was born, so I've been living in the same area my whole life. I was born in Peabody, Massachusetts. Lived on Lowell Street, which is a pretty busy street, right down the street from the uh, North Shore Shopping Center and uh, there was a lot of kids in my neighborhood and stuff like that. We used to play cops and robbers all the time and stuff. And then kids started to uh, move away, and no kids moved back in. And so I spent a lot of time um, on my own. About how old were you when that happened? Probably close to, like, the fifth grade. I had some, you know, some good friends. They moved back out to Chicago and stuff like that. So, so what did you do when, when your friends all moved away? I'm a tinkerer, uh-huh. so I just like bought my garage, spent a lot of time in my garage, and just like build things. I trash pick bicycles and snowblowers and all kinds of stuff, and just basically making Frankenstein vehicles and stuff <laughs> like that. And I started at a at a fairly young age doing that stuff. I'm an industrial model maker now. Yeah. It worked out really well. What was religious life like growing up? I was baptized Episcopalian. My only experience of church was the Methodist church that I went to uh, in Danvers, the next town over. You know, when I was young, it, you know, we did the Bible stories and stuff like that with Sunday school classes. I was in the cherub choir and then in the junior choir and started to get into the senior choir. Always enjoyed singing. It was very informative. And then when I was about 15, uh, the Methodist Church started this confession movement or something. I was in church with my mother uh, one day, and there was a guest preacher, and he's up at the pulpit and basically says, if you don't come up here and confess your sins to me right now, you're going to go to hell and all this other stuff. And I was just like, wow. And at that point, my mother leaned over to me and said, you don't have to go to church anymore if you don't want to. And I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she had the same reaction. Yeah, she did. And it was like, yeah, okay, you're at a point right now where you where you can choose. And she could see the look on my face. I'm like, get me out of here. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. My twin sister, she basically, she bought it lock, stock, and barrel. And it's like, okay. She asked me if I was going for confirmation. I'm going confirmation of what? I, I've got too many more questions, you know? So I just... Went on, my, uh, went on my merry way, and when I left the church, it, it felt like I was 
I felt like I was packing my bags when I left because there were things that I, there was a lot of value that I had gotten out of that church experience. All the Bible stories and like one of my favorites is the Good Samaritan, who's your neighbor, and uh, Golden Rule and other stories are like that. And it, for me, it was always the stories. I always got into the uh, the metaphor of what things mean and. It made more sense to me. It was easier to digest. Remind us what the story of the Good Samaritan is. The Good Samaritan, or uh, the road to Damascus, basically, was this gentleman was on his way to Damascus, and um, on the way, he was beset by a bunch of thieves, and they beat him and, and took away his stuff and basically left him on the side of the road to die. Uh, a little while later, a uh, priest comes walking by and sees him, and he's just like, oh, my gosh, i got to get out of here, and just takes off. And then, you know, later on, a, a rabbi or something comes by, and he uh, basically does the same thing and just hightails it out of there. Then a Samaritan, I found out later, at the time, Samarians were basically like the people that were looked down upon, this guy came along and he says, oh, my, you know, the guy brought him in, brought him over to an inn and paid for for all the um, upkeep and food and basically made sure it was okay. And then he was on his way and he told the innkeeper, here, have some money and, you know, I'll pay for his care. And at the end, Jesus says, okay, who, who was the neighbor of all these people? Was, you know, people with the label saying, you know, this is good. And so it was a guy who, through his deeds and through his actions, that's when I, you know, lit up when I heard the writings from Baha'u'llah and saying, let your deeds, not your words, be your adorning. And that rang true for me. Paul, how did you transfer your spiritual needs from this church that you quit? I was basically lost in the wind, you know, as it were. I, um, I basically went agnostic to atheist. It was an interesting journey. And then um, one day, when I was about 27, my daughter, who was three years, old, three years old at the time, she was waking up in the middle of the night having nightmares and stuff like that after her grandmother had passed away, my wife's mother. She'd come in and say, you know, Yaya's coming to my birthday party on Sunday and all this other stuff. And I'm like, honey, she's passed away. And I, mean, I brought her, imagine bringing a... a three-year-old kid to the cemetery and saying, look, this is, she's underneath the ground here. That's it. You know, when you're dead, you're dead. And all this other stuff. That was my belief system. And she's just like, no, no, um, no, she's coming to my birthday party Sunday and she's getting her eyes and her mouth back, you know, (laughs) like what? It was just really, really weird. Like a few days later, I'd woken up in the middle of the night, just like in a quick start. And I, it's almost like I was like thrown out of bed. And there was this, thing floating in front of me. I was like, oh my God, what is that? And I closed my eyes and I opened again and, and this thing is still sitting there floating. It was like this opaque image, you know, translucent. I could see through it and it was but there was something that was there and you know the hair standing up on the back of my head. I'm like, wow, what is that? Closed my eyes and then the image appeared again. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. So I just blew it off like, oh you know, I must have had tuna fish or something like that before I went to bed and and then, like a week or so later, I, I told my wife about it. She's like, oh, my God. Her cousin had just told her something that the same thing had happened to her mother. The woman who passed away, her sister, had a similar situation to mine. So I brought my daughter over. 
to her house, and we kind of compared notes. After we had done that, I, I called my daughter, Samantha, into the room. I said, hey, is this, uh, yeah, yeah, come to your birthday party Sunday? She goes, no. It dawned on me through this conversation that the that this image that I saw, I could see, like, hair, but there was no face. So I said, did she get her, her eyes and her mouth back? And she says, no. And then she says, I said, so I said, well, what about her nose? She goes, no, no nose. Oh, yeah, and no feet either. <laughs> oh, my God. For me, it's like my own personal little miracle mm. where I looked at it and said, okay, so there is a spirit in my body, and you don't just die. And as a result of that, I said, okay, I, I, I don't agree with the people that I've seen in the pulpit so far, so I'm just going to read everything I possibly can. And so I was doing myth and folklore festivals. I was, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. When I read the Bhagavad Gita, it was like, oh my gosh, it was like all these Bible stories that I learned when I was a little kid just came rushing back to me. There was like a parallel there. And the more and more I investigated, there was this common thread. And if you're looking, and I looked at religion more as, okay, this is a vehicle for good. It's not all this pomp and judgment and I'm right, you're wrong, and all that other stuff. I really, really had a hard time with that. As time went on, and then I was introduced to the Baha'i faith and being cynical and everything like that, I, I just kept on asking questions and asking questions. And I tell my friends that introduced me to the Baha'i faith, it was like a Chinese finger track. The more I questioned it, and then they'd ask me another question, very Socratic in their method, you know, ask me another question, and I'd go and look some more and look some more and ask another question, ask another question, and I just got deeper and deeper and deeper, and I'm like, wow, there's no denying this for me. I wasn't looking to join anything. I wasn't looking to belong to anything. I was just on a quest for, for truth. I believe I had found uh, the closest I think I'll ever get to that. And the more I read, the more enthralled I am with what the faith is capable of. And every time I read something, it goes, even though I've reread a bunch of stuff, I get a new meaning every time I read it. It's just incredible. So, Paul, you said that after you left the church, you drifted from being an agnostic to an atheist. I'm a little interested in that transition from someone who at least was a Christian believer and maybe could understand, okay, maybe organized religion is not the way to spirituality. But how is it that you actually got to the point that you even denied the existence of a supreme being? Because I was focused on the people that were living in the land of should, is what I would call it. You, know, you should this, you should that. I wasn't looking at the book of what was written, and I wasn't seeing things for myself, through my own eyes. I was looking at what these people were telling me, and I said, well, that, that doesn't compute. That's BS. So why would I investigate further something that made no sense? It seemed almost like a power struggle than anything else. There was no function, no purpose to it. It was just like, okay, I'm right and you're wrong. That seemed to be the tenor of the, of the conversation. So you almost looked at Christianity as a, as a lie at that point in your life? Yeah, I guess you could say that. It wasn't even so much Christianity was a lie as that the, that the people that were representing it weren't giving it a 
functional, <laughs> positive way of looking at things. It was all do what the person on the pulpit says or you're going to hell. And I just kept on running into that whole thing over and over and over again. I, I read the Bible when I was 15, and when I went into the church that time, and, and this guy saying this stuff, I, I mean, one of the questions I had was like, are, are we reading the same book? You know, I just don't see what this person, where did, where did they find whatever they find to spout whatever they're spouting? So you were throwing the baby with the bathwater out, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was. Yeah, I was just, I was really discouraged. And it's like, if that's all you can offer me, as far as explanations or anything like that, I'm like, I don't even want to go down that path. I'm on my own. Heck with that. I think I can do better than that. <laughs> so I basically, I, I took the stuff that did work with me. That's why that's what I meant by, like, I, I felt like I was packing my bags when I left the church. It was like, you know, I, I kept what worked, you know, what the, you know, what the parables were, all that stuff, those little mysteries and stories and affirmations, and that there was some continuity and some something to that. And it seemed like the people that were representing their faith kind of lost sight of that. I was being very prejudiced, you might say, at the same time with all this stuff. That's when I started basically looking at the, at the books of all the different faiths and just reading it for myself and saying, oh, what, how do I feel when I read this? I mean, even at one point, my sister, my now first wife, and I sat down and we went and we got as many Bibles as we could find and, and we basically would open up the Bible and point to it, a verse, and then the other persons would look up in the Bible what the verses were and there was like a different bent to each one of the readings that we had. And it's like, well, how do you feel after you've read this? And how do you feel? So it was very, uh, it was more of an intuitive investigation at that point. And it was really interesting to see what the people who were translating the Bible or paraphrasing it or whatever were doing that made uh, what their angle was. It was really interesting. Some of them made me feel nice and warm and like, yeah, good news. And there were other ones where it's like, oh, God, wow. <laughs> Why would anybody be attracted to that? So before you had the spiritual experience, you sort of looked at the Bible as a set of moral stories rather than some divine source of information or guidance? Yeah, I mean, you figure I was like 15 at the time, and that's a decision that I had made, figuring, okay, well, this, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> And I just never really uh, thought more of it, and I became very prejudiced as far as that stuff goes. There wasn't anything anybody could say or tell me that would make a difference. I knew in my heart of hearts that it would just lead to a judgmental and disappointing place and stuff like that. So I just put it aside, and it's like, no, I'm, I'm tired of the disappointment here, so I'm just going to move on. And like I said, it wasn't until... My uh, mother-in-law had come to visit me <laughs> after she had passed that I really started to question things. I did it with a fair amount of vigor. I, I would even go so far as to say at some point I was insatiable finding stuff out. And I was very quick still at the time to point out the uh, inconsistencies and the contradictions that people put out. Well, it means this, and how can you say this? And you use their words against 
your friend Charles Cooper, he told me that you're quite knowledgeable of Tao Ching and Lao Tzu. Yeah, now, one of my favorites. Okay, were those two included in your search after your mother-in-law visited you? That was afterwards. When my mother-in-law visited me, I was still with my first wife, and it wasn't too long after that that, that we split up. I had tried reading, well, I didn't try. I read the Tao Te Ching before I was going through uh, my divorce, and it just didn't land with me. I'm like, ah, oh, it, it, it was just words on a page. And it just didn't resonate with me. And then I picked it up again when I was going through my divorce. I was out on disability at the same time. My hand, I'd gotten a metal bar through my hand, so my hand was pretty messed up. And I work with my hand, so I was like, you can't work. You have to sit here and wait till all this stuff gets settled. So I did a fair amount of reading and investigating and meditating. And it was a, like a spiritual quest. And I, when I picked up the Tao Te Ching, I read stuff like, do you have the patience to let your mud settle? There's a Stephen Mitchell's uh, interpretation of the Tao Te Ching. I just, uh, it resonated really well with me. Things about mastery and, you know, what's it like to just be and just be in the moment and all that stuff. And geez, when I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, wow, I should read it again. <laughs> <laughs> and how about Lao Tzu? From what I read about Lao Tzu was that, you know, the guy knew what he knew. He seemed a, a bit rebellious at the same time, very knowledgeable. He struck a chord with me. I was just like, mm-hmm. I would have loved to have, have met him and just sit down and have a conversation. <laughs> right. Paul, for those of us who may not have heard of either of these, could you give a quick one-minute background info on what these two, two things are, Tao Te Ching and Lao Tzu? The Tao Te Ching, from what I understand, is that was basically a philosopher that lived a long time ago in China. People that lived around him knew this guy was a really wise person and just a, an incredible sage. And one day, he, uh, Lao Tse got up and he was like leaving the city, just saying, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to go up into the mountains or whatever. And somebody had stopped and asked him, question, you know, like, what is the meaning of life or something along that line, and or, um, you know, what is life's purpose or some, something along that line. I forget exactly what it is, and he basically gave this information to this person who wrote it down and so on or memorized it or something. Eventually got written down. It was, for me, non-judgmental. It seemed to be very... Um, forgiving and just more like matter of fact. It seemed to be more about the mechanics of life than a, a moral thing at the same time. And then the other one was Tao Te Ching. The Tao Te Ching. Well, uh, Lao Tzu was the author of the Tao. Oh, okay. This was the, the writings that, that were given was basically to that guy that was at the, at the city gate where okay. Lao Tzu left. After your spiritual experience with your mother-in-law visiting you, and you started reading all of these other religious scriptures, were you able to make any kind of connection before you ran into the Baha'i faith? Were you able to make any kind of connection to or, or establish any kind of relationship between these scriptures as, or make sense of why there are um, yeah. different sorts of scriptures? Well, for me, from what I understood, was more that 
the more I read of everything, I could see that there was a common thread. And the only difference at the time was the time in which, you know, these prophets were, were placed, the prophets or manifestations came into play, looking at the time in, in which they were doing their thing, like Moses on the mountain and getting the Jews out of Israel. And it was all about survival and do's and don'ts and dietary laws and all this other stuff. And all that stuff was for their protection and how to, how to make their life better. And that made sense to me. And I don't think the same thing would, would apply to when Krishna and Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita were going through their stuff. There was a completely different set of circumstances, yet there were parallel conversations that were going on. It's kind of hard for me to describe. And it all came down to, for me, a way of being and participating in the world effectively. So when I came across the Baha'i Faith, it was like, wow, this kind of brings it all together. And we're encouraged in the Baha'i Faith to read all different faiths and investigate. Like at one point, I had a a 15-year-old boy come up to me and say, you know, I'm really questioning my faith. He's a Baha'i, and he said, I'm I'm questioning my faith. And I'm like, good for you! (laughs) Because you don't know how it works unless you test it. How do you know what it is that you believe unless you test what it is and make sure that, yeah, okay, yeah, this works. Yep, okay, that works. There isn't any one way to do something. It's like, you know, what speaks to you? You know, what, for me, I got into stories. My experience is more tangible stuff. Somebody would give me a drawing and I'll give them a 3D model in, in return. And that's where I find mo- most of my joy. And that's where I basically feel the most grounded and most connected. And children's stories, I've got a great collection of children's stories, myth and folklore, these threads that, that go through everything. It's like a Cinderella story. Every culture in the world has Cinderella story, one one way or another. And I just thought that that was really fascinating. Like, wow, that well, that's their Cinderella story. That's their Cinderella story. And then it looked like, wow, there's really not much of a difference between somebody that lives on the other side of the world and me. It's like, yeah, we we still feel and breathe the same air and feel the same things and you know have the same wants and dislikes for the most part. And I just thought that that was really uh, fascinating. You know, the more I studied other cultures, it's like, wow, instead of finding differences, I found similarities. And I think that's the most intriguing thing. Which is interesting because it's very much in line with the Baha'i teaching of unity and diversity. Right. That unity isn't about being the same. It's about celebrating our differences, but still being right. unified and working with our different talents. Yeah. Now, you said that when you ran into the Baha'i faith, that it brought it together and made sense, these different religious scriptures that you were reading. Could you elaborate on what was it that the Baha'i faith was telling you that made that sense for you? Other faith that I had run into, it's like, this is the way. This is the only way. And so when I came to the Baha'i faith, because I had gone through that whole process of investigating different faiths and cultures and so on, that it was clear to me when the Baha'i faith says, for every Baha'i book you read, you should read another book from another faith completely. 
So instead of discouraging investigating religions, it was encouraging it, which to me was like a breath of fresh air. I was like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> it was like, instead of don't read, it was do read. Investigate instead of don't investigate. Make sure what you're doing works and doesn't work. It was very pragmatic for me. And like I said, it was, you know, it was like a Chinese finger trap. The more I got into it, the more I couldn't get out of it. I was hooked. And like I said, I, I, I wasn't looking to join anything. I wasn't looking to belong to anything. It just became. <laughs> <laughs> Your description of all these religions saying the same thing, and you described something about Moses giving the dietary laws and the do's and don'ts, reminded me of the principle yeah. in the Baha'i faith called progressive revelation. And I was wondering if you could elaborate for our listeners what that concept is in the Baha'i faith. And this would be my interpretation of it. Basically, when mankind, as we go along, every once in a while, things kind of go south and we get wrapped up in all kinds of rules and garbage and we end up thinking in our own soup. And then usually when, when man is at that low ebb, a manifestation comes into being, usually right in the middle of that cesspool <laughs> mm. that brings some light and gives people an opportunity to shift and change their way of looking at things and being and rejuvenates and refreshes. In every faith that I had checked out as well, there was always, uh, I'm going to come again, I'm going to come again. I mean, the Chinese culture, it's the Bodhisattva. And I liken it to like an elementary school, going into junior high and high school. You know, if you've had small children, you look at them and it's like, okay, well, this, you're going to learn how to read now. And, you know, once you've learned how to read, we can give you something else. And like with math, you have to learn how to add and subtract before you can multiply and divide. If you look at mankind coming in and where they where we were even you know, a couple hundred years ago, we were split up all over the all over the world. There was different cultures that were unexplored, and you know to sit there and say that only one manifestation came in one part of the world and not any place else. I think God is much greater than that. So that's why I even started investigating other faiths because I want to find out what their manifestation. And what these manifestations that and the thing is is that every manifestation of God always complemented the other manifestations that came before them to the point where they spoke so reverently it was almost like to, to listen to Baha'u'llah talk about Jesus it's like Jesus walked into the room and to talk about Muhammad and and Moses and so on there's, there's a reverence there when they're referring to you know these manifestations and, and at the same time it, looking at, okay, every manifestation comes in, it's like, okay, this, this is what you guys messed up on your interpretation and, and basically would reinterpret it and give a new lesson as we go on. So there's that progress, progressive revelation where we learn this. You have to learn love before you learn about community, that type of thing. Self-love before you can love somebody else. We're taught to learn how to love ourselves and respect ourselves, just like parents say, you know, brush your teeth, brush your hair, take your shower put a smile on when you go out there, and then it gives us an opportunity to, to learn lessons, and it's the same thing with religion and, and progressive revelation. 
So you keep using this term manifestation, but I'm getting the sense it means the prophet founders of each of the major religions of the world. The whole concept of, a, of, a, of an incarnation of God, it doesn't make sense to me. Let's put it this way. Like when I'm, I'm thinking about Jesus, he died on the cross. For the longest time, people say, oh, Jesus died for our sins. And I'm like, what does that mean? And, and I just really had a lot of questions about the mechanics of how, how that works. I got tired of people saying, oh, just, this is just the way it is. So just take it on faith. And it's like, yeah, I'm not there yet. <laughs> One of the interpretations that I found the most enjoyable was Jesus died on the cross. And three days later, you know, and this is after his, all his people betrayed him and I mean, Peter denied him three times, and Judas, for 80 paces of silver, turned him over to the guards. Three days later, Peter stood up and basically started talking about Jesus. And that, to me, is the resurrection. And it isn't until we carry on that conversation and declare our intention about how we want things to go on in the future. And just like we teach our children, and the same thing with faith. If we bastardize that interpretation, it's only going to last so long. I don't come to conclusions. I, I love the question. I just like, okay, this is where I'm at in the conversation. I'm always open to a new idea or a new concept. And that's not to say that I don't believe in the meantime. It's, it's more of a, okay, there's an affirmation coming down or, yep, I know this has workability. There's certain things that I don't have to revisit because I know they, they work. In this situation, if my circumstances changed, I know that there's things on one hand that I could draw upon in my spiritual pursuits that will always help me. And then there's other things where it's like, okay, that was a misconception. Guess what? I'm going to learn. I'm going to open myself up to another possibility here and learn something that I haven't learned before. And by the end of the lesson, I usually find out it's like, oh, geez, I already knew that. I just had a uh, negative spin on things. You mentioned you couldn't grasp the Christian concept of God incarnate into Jesus. What is the Baha'i concept, then, of the station of Jesus? From what I understand, the manifestation is basically somebody that has all those qualities of God that reflect God's teachings and and way of being and, and is a guide. And the manifestations aren't your average normal Joe, they're somebody that was tapped to say, okay, you've got a, a lot of, I want to say power, you know, because mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's almost like they can, like, peek over the fence and see what the future is, even before it's here. The guidance that we require to make the best choices and live the best life and create the, the best community that we possibly can. I look at kids, and I'm just like, okay, they, there's a lot of things they don't know, and there's, there's a lot of forgiveness and unconditional love that, that goes on in that process, and the manifestations of God do the same thing. that They have a clearer picture, and if you investigate all these manifestations of God, you'll see that they, there's something there that is undeniable an energy or, or clarity or, or a certitude that is profound. It's one of those things where you just hear something and just rings in your ear and just keeps on coming back and coming back and takes on a life of its own. And 
the thing about manifestations of, of God is that they actually can make words come to life. From the time that you had that spiritual experience of your mother-in-law visiting you to when you ran into the Baha'i faith, how long of a period of time was that? I was about 10 years. I investigated the Baha'i faith for probably two and a half years. And how long have you been a Baha'i? Since 1993. Okay, that would be 16 years. How would you say the Baha'i faith has informed what you do or how you carry yourself in what you do? It has given me a lot more compassion for other people and forgiveness not only for other people and for myself as well. I think that's the most striking piece. I used to see myself as, you know, worthless piece of crap. You know, I'm the black sheep of the family. And I I should also mention, too, that when I was 17, my mother had committed suicide. And my sister and I, we finished off our last year of high school, basically on our own. My, My father had a couple of guys come live with us for a little while. They were both aspiring preachers, so <laughs> that kind of put the nail in the coffin for me as far as that stuff goes, because these guys were anything but compassionate. If they disagreed with something I did, it was just like, boom, I was just like put aside. And I just didn't understand that, you know, and I'm sure in, in their environment, they're very kind and compassionate people, and so it just, for me, came across very judgmental. That kind of made me go to more to the negative side of things. On my own at 17, mother committed suicide and stuff like that. I was, I guess I, you, you would say I would be a fairly angry person. And at the same time, the uh, level of self-worth is not too great. Now, why, Paul, you thought you were the black sheep of the family? Because I had this notion that I, I'm bad and wrong, so I might as well be bad and wrong. And I just lived my life that way. And I must say, not much positive came out of that. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> no consequences, no responsibility. It's just like, okay, I'll just take my lumps as I go along, and this is as good as it gets. Life stinks, and I'm going on, and that's pretty much how I saw things. And when I came to the Baha'i faith, and actually it was even even before that, like I said, you know, reading the Tao Te Ching, and so I got that common thread that was there. It was like, wow, you know, I, I started to feel a lot better about myself because I'm like, wow, I, I, I see all these wondrous and beautiful things and I'm just amazed that other people don't see what I'm seeing. And then when I came into the Baha'i faith, it's like, wow, you know, just it, it was like I was already there. I was already a Baha'i and I just didn't know it in the sense of there's a real joy in just in investigating other faiths. Like for Christmas, I'll go to um, my friend over here at the First Church in Salem. I live in Salem now. Salem, Massachusetts, you know, we had the witch trials and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. My buddy is a minister over there. So, like, we'll go there for Christmas services and stuff like that. We'll do the midnight mass because my wife, who was born and raised Catholic, all the years of Catholic school and all that stuff, then it's nice to go back and, and be with that and be with the joy and the love, and you can't, can't deny that. My daughter came up to me and says, Dad, what's the difference between Baha'u'llah and Jesus? And without hesitation, I said, their birthday. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> they all come from the same source. What a relief that is to sit there and say, yeah, that, that, that we all belong and that we're part of something instead of trying to say, I'm this 
and so you're not. And to find out what, what our differences are instead of what we have in common. I prefer to, you know, look at the, the commonality of like, you know, what, what we all have. There's that divine spark in every one of us and just some people just don't see it and they're busy having that conversation like I was having as a kid and yeah, stay right up into adulthood, you know, I'm bad and wrong, I might as well be bad and wrong. That's that's your affirmation. Guess what? That's that's what you're gonna get. And so the Baha'i faith to me brought in prayers and writing that would basically help me shift those conversations. Like the divine art of living. I was reading that with a friend of mine and my now wife, then fiance, would basically when I came back from reading it with this person would say to me, it's like, you know, she, she noticed a difference in me. My way of being had, had shifted. And it was like, yeah, you know, I feel nice and mellow and aware and bright where I hadn't before I was reading it. So it, it to me, it had a very subtle and profound effect on me, which is, you know, another nice affirmation. Your family consists now of your father and your sister? I'm one of five. My oldest brother is in Jersey. My twin sister is down in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I got a, another sister up in uh, Salem, New Hampshire. My other brother, I uh, lived in Connecticut, and he passed away like 15 years ago. Uh, he had large cell lymphoma. And my father lives up in Lawrence. My daughter from my first marriage is 25 years old now, the girl that was three years old at the time. She just got married last October. She's up in Ashland, New Hampshire, and I also have an eight-year-old daughter with my present wife. What, what was your father's reaction to you becoming a Baha'i initially? Growing up, my father was basically, I've always ever known him as, as being an atheist. And then when I got older, I found out he was the treasurer at the Episcopal Church that I was baptized at. There was some shenanigans going on about uh, being the treasurer of people for scholarships or something like that that were available, and there were people that were qualified, kept on getting turned down and turned down, and then when the minister's son came in to go to school, boom, he got the whole thing, and my father was just so upset, and he said, you know, if this is what God is, I don't want anything to do with it. They left the church, and my mother was basically saying, no, you guys, you get you get something. You guys got to have some kind of background, and that's what we at our church, a lot of it was because of choir, and uh, the preacher at the time was very dynamic, very loving guy. As the Methodist Church evolved through the 60s and 70s, and things started to get a little bit weird. It wasn't the way it was when I was a kid. I mean, as far as he goes, I've been on my own since I was 17, so I mean, whatever he thought, no, I just basically said, this is, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm at. Our, our relationship has there's been like years of estrangement, and uh, you know, we've been able to work that stuff through in the sense that you know, the past was what it was. There's nothing that can change it. I forgave and basically said, I'm tired of complaining about uh, the relationship that we've had in the past. I'd rather create a, a relationship in the future and work towards a future relationship that I would like to have. And that's where we're at right now. And I find myself doing that with a lot of my relations from the past, like with my first wife and with other people that I've had, you know, estrangement with. 
have had some incredible, miraculous changes for that, just you know, living into our future instead of dwelling on our past, blaming and all that other garbage. Just, oh, Jimmy's <laughs> 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 just thinking about it. Paul, thank you so much for sharing your story. All right, you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Paul Hoff, a Baha'i from the North Shore of Boston who's an industrial modeler. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Thou
beautiful and green I will be a happy and joyful being Oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety Nor will I let trouble harass me unto God, pray to and commune with him at midnight, saying, O Lord, I have turned my face unto thy kingdom of oneness, and am in the sea of thy mercy. Oh Lord, enlighten my sight by beholding thy light in this dark night and make me happy by the wine of thy love in this wonderful age. Oh Lord, make me hear thy call and open before my face the doors of thy heaven so that I may see the light of thy glory and become attracted to thy beauty. Verily, thou art the giver, the generous, the merciful. The forgiving The forgiving The forgiving The forgiving The forgiving 
the forgiving the forgiving the forgiving the forgiving Getting no rest There's been a lot of things that I'm holding in my chest I hear a lot of people saying life is a test But I confess, I feel hopeless And I feel a lot of pain I hear a lot of words that are spoken in vain But I'm not the same as the rest So a voice from within speaks out to say You can't take my heart or take my soul And try as you may, I will not be controlled It's been too long that I have not known The power that rests in the pen that I hold uh, And no, I'm not a toy, no, I'm not a puppet No, I'm not a soldier that you can deploy I am but a word, love, that means that I'm tough And I can't be destroyed, what? Chess. Now they got us all feeling neurotic and stressed, huh? The world is in misery, the people are lost Obsessed with themselves, fighting for what victory? Cause the battle is within, so solve the mystery, yeah You know you can't take my soul And try as you may, I will not be controlled It's been too long that I have not known The power that rests in the pen that I hold, uh, And no, I'm not a toy, no, I'm not a puppet No, I'm not a soldier that you can deploy I am but a word, love that means that I'm tough and I can't be destroyed. What? Give in. It don't matter if it's cold or it's hot. I'ma stand in this spot because it's time to begin. Begin a new search in the hopes that I find and take back this life that is mine. Because I don't want to waste no more time. I gotta spread the fuse, reflect the words divine. Truthfulness is the foundation of all the human virtues. Without truthfulness, 
progress and success. And all the worlds of God are impossible. Impossible for any soul. Impossible for any soul. Impossible for any, any soul. Impossible, yeah, for any soul. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.